0: Nehemiah chapter 13 this morning. Uh, well, if you're visiting with us, I want to welcome you again. My name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as um, one of four pastors here at New Breed. I, the privilege of serving as the lead pastor. We're so thankful that you're here visiting with us. Hey, buddy. Um, we are this, this week finishing a series we've been in for a few months now through the book of Nehemiah, a series that we've entitled a faith that moves forward. So I pray that Nehemiah has been an encouragement to you as it has been an encouragement to me. And this morning we're going to finish the book by looking at Nehemiah chapter 13 verses 4 through the end of the chapter through 31. And I know for most of it we've just read little sections here and there and then talked about a chapter a week. But if you'll give me about two and a half minutes, I want to invite you to stand. And I want to read this entire last chapter to you, beginning in verse 4. Uh, read it with you, actually. Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. And we'll read through the end through verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, now before this, the priest Eliashib had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was a relative of Tobiah. And he had prepared a large room for him where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, and the tents of grain, new wine, fresh oil prescribed for the Levite singers and gatekeepers, along with the contributions for the priest. Now, while all this was happening, this is Nehemiah, he says, I was not in Jerusalem because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Elisha had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. I was greatly displeased and I threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the rooms be purified. And I had the articles of the house of God restored there along with the grain offerings and frankincense. I also found out that because the portions for the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back to their own fields. Therefore, I rebuked the officials saying, why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levites and the singers together and stationed them at their post. Then all Judah brought a tenth of the grain, new wine and fresh oil into the storehouses. I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, the priests, Shemaliah, and the scribes, Aduk, and Padiah of the Levites, and Hanan, son of Zakur, son of Mathaniah, to assist him because they were considered trustworthy. They were responsible for the distribution to their colleagues. Remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love I have done for the house of my God and for its services. At that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys along with wine, grapes, and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, so I warned them against selling food on that day. The Tyrians living there were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same? So that our God brought all this disaster on us and on this city. And now you are rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Verse 19, when shadows began to fall on the city gates of Jerusalem, just before the Sabbath, I gave orders that the city gates be closed and not open until after the Sabbath. I posted some of my men at the gates so that no goods could enter during the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside Jerusalem. But I warned them, why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do it again, I will use force against you. After that, they did not come again on the Sabbath. Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves and guard the city gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God. And look on me with compassion according to the abundance of your faithful love. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. I rebuked them, cursed them. I beat some of their men and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? And there was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by his God, and God made him a king over all Israel, yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithful against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehodia, Jehoiada, sorry, son of the high priest Eliashib, had become a son-in-law to Sambalat the Hornite. So I drove them away from me. Remember them, my God, for, dealing the, for defiling the priesthood as well as the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified them from everything foreign and assigned specific duties to each of the priests and the Levites. I also arranged for the donation of wood at the appointed time and for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, with favor." This morning, I want us to consider this idea as we come to the close of the book of Nehemiah, faith that finishes well. Faith that finishes well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for your grace and mercy that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. God, we're ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A faith that finishes well. So as most of you are well aware, at the beginning of this month, on May 6th, the 149th Kentucky Derby took place. Now, I'll be transparent with you. Now, I'll admit to you, I don't know that much about horse racing. Uh, I, t- I typically watch one horse race a year. I know we got a brother that works at Churchill Downs, I'm sorry. I, I only watch about one horse race a year, and it is the Kentucky Derby, and If I'm being transparent, it's not even because I'm all that interested in it. I just feel like it's my obligation as a citizen of of Kentucky. Um, I have to watch the race. But as I watch the race, I always find myself looking at a very specific aspect of the race. You see, I, I assume this about most people. Maybe everybody's like me, but I assume most people watch the horse race, and they watch the horse that's out in front. I found that I never do that. I always watch kind of the middle or the back of the pack, and the reason for this, and maybe you've noticed it, but I've noticed that it's typically not the ones who start out in front that win the race. Have you noticed that? I mean, just take this past Kentucky Derby, right? The, the horse that won was Mage. He spent three-fourths of the race in the back four horses, and it wasn't until the final turn that he managed to sprint ahead, win the race, and finish well. Even the most famous, in my opinion, Kentucky Derby winner, Secretariat in 1973, he spent, I think it said statistically speaking, 91% of the race in fifth or sixth place until that very end when he managed to sprint out and win the race. And it's fascinating to me that the horses that finish well typically aren't the ones who start out in front. So I got curious this week about that I reached out to our resident horse expert. You know we have one of those, right? So Leah Ayal trains horses for a living. Um, I love our church. Right? We, we got mechanics and horse trainers and dentists. I mean, I just, I love our church. But I, I, it gives me a lot of fuel for sermons, amen? So I reached out to her. Uh, and I just, I just wanted to know. So I told her what I was working on this week. I kind of gave her my introduction, and this is what I sent to her in a text. I said, it seems to me that often horses that start out in the back are the ones that manage to pull ahead in the end. And so I'm wondering, is this something they train to do? Is it a strategy? And I'm just going to tell you, I might be preaching this morning, but she preached a whole sermon to me when she responded to that question. But she told me that it's absolutely a strategy and something that horses train to do. But she also told me this, which I what I found, I found fascinating. I know we're missing a lot of people, but I came to preach this morning. Y'all with me? All right. Because Leah came to preach this week. Amen. (laughs) She told me this. She said, one of the things you have to understand is that some horses just aren't built for it. So what they do is they try to run out ahead with all the speed that they can get at the beginning in order to hopefully wear down the other horses, and maybe they'll be able to finish on top. But she told me it's a very risky strategy. And I, and I believe her because I watch the races, and as I've said, it's, it's very rare to see the horse that starts out in front in well. And, and I wonder this morning if that's not the problem with so many throughout the course of the Christian faith, that people have cared more, that they've been concerned more about getting ahead fast than they've cared about finishing the race well. I wonder if that's not the case if we're honest with some of us sitting in this room this morning. That you care more about being seen out front, you care more about setting the pace, about reaching the top, about being the best right now, than you do about finishing the entire race well. Because here's why that's so dangerous. For many of us, if we pursue the top, we'll reach the top. Some of you are like, Amen. It's what I came to hear. No, 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 but here's why it's dangerous obtaining the top is not the difficult part. Getting out front is not the difficult part. Maintaining your integrity when you get there is the problem. And so many people have reached the top and as a result, they failed to finish well. Because once they got there, the lights, the glamour, the praise, the accolades, everything that went with it was too much and they were too distracted by what was going on around them rather than pressing on to finish well. You don't have to say amen to that because I know I'm on good exegetical ground here because we see the danger time and time again in Scripture, don't we? Like We saw it with Moses. After delivering Israelites from slavery in Egypt, after having a conversation in the very presence of God with God on Mount Sinai, after receiving the law and giving the law and maintaining the law, after being at the pinnacle of his career as a deliverer, he failed to reach the promised land. Because he failed to end well. Or you could look at Elijah. There's some debate about his ending, but I would argue that Elijah didn't end well. After being a faithful prophet, after maintaining his integrity, after seeing the very power of God displayed on Mount Carmel, I mean, in a visible way, you got to put yourself there. I mean, he heard the sky crack, and he watched the fire fall down. He felt the heat of the flames of the very presence of God. He witnessed the might of God on full display, and in just a few days, he would find himself cowering in a cave. As if God couldn't deliver, he struggled to finish well. Or you could look at David being the second greatest king that Israel would ever know. You know who the first is, amen? David was at the top of his political career, having done what no one else could do. He established a peace between the southern and the northern kingdoms of Israel. He was an accomplished military commander. He was an acclaimed recording artist with the top 150 worship hits of the day. He was a skilled diplomat, but at the height of his career, his gifts took him to a place where his character couldn't keep him, and he committed adultery. But on top of that, he had an innocent man killed to cover it up, and as a result of that, he paid a heavy, heavy price. David, a man after God's own heart, failed to finish Well, they all made it to the top, but they couldn't stay there, and that's the danger. As one pastor I heard preach said it, he says, sometimes your gifts can take you to a place where your character can't keep you, and as a result, you will fail to end well, and the danger is, if some of us are honest this morning, it's the end of Nehemiah, I'm coming for you, all right? I think if we're honest, some of us desire to hear you're the best now more than we, hear, more than we desire to hear the Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant yeah. then. Yeah. Yeah. So what we do is we run fast now with little thought given to the end. It's in my notes, but I'm going to pick on it. we got a lot of seminary students that go to our church, so let me speak to some of you all, right? like I I see this most clearly in the church because some of us want the platform. We want the people. We want the position. We want to preach. We want to be seen, and we want to be known, and we spend all this time cultivating our gifts, and we fail to cultivate our character, and I think for pastors, the greatest temptation is for your gifts to take you to a place that your character can't keep you. That's why for us as pastors, we're going to spend more time investing in your character than we are your gifts. Your gifts are the easy part, but the character, that's a lot of work. But I want to tell you this morning that Jesus is not as concerned with you reaching the top as he is with you finishing well. Like a horse race, getting out front early is a strategy, but it's risky, and very seldom will you finish well. Let me just caution any one of you who thinks you will be the exception to that. So let me go back to the sermon that Leah preached to me. She told me that the horses that run out front, they're, at the very beginning, it's a risky strategy for them. But she said the horses that stay towards the middle of the pack, if not the back of the pack, that is something they train hard to do. And she said it's absolutely a strategy so that they can finish well. But she taught me this. She said there are two aspects to a horse's training, the physical aspect and the mental aspect. And so for the physical aspect, she said, trainers train the horses to push their hardest at the end of their gallop to build up stamina by asking them to keep pushing even when they get tired. And for mental training, she said it's teaching the horse to be patient in the first part of the race, Not to get overexcited and run too fast in the beginning so that they can finish well. Here's what I want to say this morning. If horse trainers have come to understand that if you want a horse to finish well, it will take work and discipline, how much more should we consider the fact that a faith that finishes well will require real work and discipline and a faith that is moving forward? has the ultimate goal of being a faith that finishes well. Why? Because we know that one day our faith will end. You do know your faith will end one day, right? Because your faith will become sight. And it will no longer be faith. We will see, as Augustine said, the thing in which we have believed in. And so when we come to the end, we want to come having finished well. And this final chapter of Nehemiah 13 is positioned to teach us the training and the discipline required for a faith to finish well. So let me try to show you and I'll be in my seat. Buckle up, I just spent 15 minutes on an introduction. (laughs) Visitors, I'm sorry. Um, There are four lessons I want you to see about how to have a faith that finishes well. Here's the first. A faith that finishes well is faithful in whatever God has called you to. And I would add, now. Is faithful in whatever God has called you to, now. Look again with me at verses four through nine. It says, now before this, the priest Eliashib had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was a relative of Tobiah and had prepared a large room for him where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tents of grain, new wine, and fresh oil prescribed for the Levite singers, gatekeepers, along with the contributions for the priest. While all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the rooms be purified and had the articles of, God, of the house of God restored there along with the grain offerings and frankincense. So Nehemiah 13 is interesting to me uh, because honestly it seems a little bit out of place in its position in the book of Nehemiah. Chronologically speaking, what we're reading in Nehemiah chapter 13 actually took place before Nehemiah chapter 12. So let me explain it to you. So we read at the beginning of verse four, it says, now before this. So that's Nehemiah 13 verse four. And what he was referring to with the this in verse four is the dedication of the wall in chapter 12 and what took place in verses one through three of chapter 13. So basically what he's doing is he's been recording it, but he gets to chapter 13 and he kind of says, let me jump back to what was taking place before we actually dedicated the wall, before the people separated themselves and consecrated themselves for the Lord. Because if you remember back to last week at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 12, Nehemiah lists all those who had come before him. He highlights the priests, the Levites, those who had returned. He's looking back on God's past faithfulness. But then after that, they dedicate the wall. Remember the two, uh, the troop, two processions of people walking a, on the top of the wall, heading to the temple, singing praises to their God. They're celebrating God's present faithfulness. And then in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13, they again consecrate themselves to the Lord. They set themselves apart as holy, as a people for the glory of God. They're expecting God's future faithfulness. But what we read in chapter 13, beginning in verse 4, is actually what prompted all of this to take place. It wasn't that Nehemiah just said, man, today would be a great day to dedicate the wall. There was something that prompted him to do all of that. And what what led Nehemiah to praise God in chapter 12, what promoted him or prompted him to remind the people of the faithfulness of God and to renew their covenant faithfulness to God was the fact that some of the people who had came to settle in Jerusalem and the surrounding towns and villages, chapter 11, Right, They had come, but they were starting to show patterns of once again being unfaithful to God. The same thing that led them into exile in the first place. They started doing those things again. And so though they had started well, they were on their way to once again failing to finish well. So in chapter 13, you see some of the problems that led Nehemiah to celebrate the faithfulness of God and to call people back to faithful obedience. He was calling them not to rest on what God had already done, But to press on to finish well. And one of the things that we learn is that the people were not remaining faithful in the areas where God had called them to serve. And we see it most clearly here with the priest, Eliashab. It's just a quick point of clarity for you. We talked about last week how the current high priest is is Eliashab. I don't think that this priest is the high priest, Eliashab. So I think you still have the high priest, Eliashab, and then under him you have another priest called Eliashab. That shouldn't be too shocking for new breed, because apparently we just rock with the name Michael. We got a couple pastors that are Michael. So that's what's going on here. All right. If you want to know how I got there, I can explain it to you later. But this isn't the high priest. This is another priest. Tracking with me? All right. And so what happens in verses four and five is that this priest who was put in charge of the storerooms. Now, mind the significance of this. This is the place where the offerings are kept, where the things needed for temple worship are stored. This priest clears it out, and he gives the room to, as as our text says, a relative or, or a more accurate translation would be an associate, Tobiah. Now, you remember Tobiah, don't you? Tobiah is an Ammonite, a person who we learned last week in Nehemiah 13 verse 1 who should have never entered the assembly of God. Right? Nehemiah 13, verse 1. At that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people, and the command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Do you remember why? Because they wouldn't help Israel when they were traveling. And then Moab tried to hire a false prophet, Balaam, to curse Israel. So God says, none of you can be in the assembly of God. But he was also the person who ridiculed Nehemiah for rebuilding the wall in Nehemiah chapter 2. He mocked the state of the wall. Remember that guy that said, man, if a fox climbed on that sucker, it would fall down. He also plotted To physically harm the Israelites in Nehemiah 4. He hired false prophets to trip Nehemiah up in Nehemiah chapter 6. He also in Nehemiah 6 sent letters to other nobles in Judah to try and take control away from Nehemiah. This is a man who at every turn has opposed the work of Nehemiah, opposed the work Nehemiah and the people were doing to try to bring God glory, and here he is given a room in the temple by a priest. A room that stored originally the things meant for God. And so we see a f- priest failing to be faithful to what God had called him to. Why? Why would he do this? Well, because Tobiah was a man of influence. We learn that in Nehemiah chapter 6. And it said that many were bound to him. But it also we learn in Nehemiah 13 that he was connected somehow to this priest. And so this should serve as a warning to us that the things that God has entrusted to us are meant for the glory of God. They're not meant for us to build ourselves up or to gain some credit with somebody who has some influence. But what I want you to see, and this is fascinating to me intentionally, the text places his unfaithfulness alongside a picture of faithfulness in Nehemiah. Because where was Nehemiah when all of this was going on? Well, we learn this in verse 6. While all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem. Because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence. This is powerful. Right? So go all the way back to chapter 2 with me. You don't actually have to flip there. I'm going to read it to you. But do you remember what happened when Nehemiah asked King Artaxerxes for permission to go and rebuild the wall in Jerusalem? He asks the king if he can go. And in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 6, it says, "The the the king with the queen seated beside him asked him, how long will your journey take and when will you return? And then it says, Nehemiah says, so I gave him a definite time and it pleased the king to send me. So don't miss this. Nehemiah went to Jerusalem with the expectation that he would have to go back to Babylon. He wasn't even going to stay in the city that he helped rebuild for the glory of God. Why? Because Nehemiah had other responsibilities that he refused to be unfaithful to. He was a cupbearer for the king. He was trusted by the king. He He was an associate of the king, and rather than stay in the city of promise, Nehemiah was faithful to his responsibilities and went back to his job. Now hear me. Nehemiah is a picture of faithfulness, even though his job wasn't what you would consider vocational ministry. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't a temple singer. He was a cupbearer. But the fact that Eliashib had what we would consider a ministry job didn't guarantee that he was faithful with what he had. Church, here's what I'm trying to get you to see this morning. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter what your responsibility is, whether you're an accountant, a mechanic, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a teacher, whether you're in ministry, or whether you train horses. Whatever you do, wherever God has placed you, It is no accident that you are there, and God has you where he wants you, and our responsibility is to be faithful, to glorify him wherever he has you. And please understand, hear this, your position does not determine your faithfulness. Your posture in whatever position God has placed you in determines your faithfulness. And I know what the temptation is. I've felt the temptation too. The temptation is to think that the grass is always greener on the other side. If only I was the boss. If only I had the opportunity. If only I could get out of the house and could go work in an office. If only I had that pulpit or I had that platform. Then I could really be faithful. But listen to me. The grass may indeed be greener on the other side. But maybe the reason the grass is greener over there is because you're not there. And if you were faithful where you are, your grass would be green. But, but you want the grass over there. And if you went over there, that grass would turn brown too. Because again, the problem is not your position. It's your posture wherever God has you. Wow. Nobody else might like your grass, but throw some fertilizer down and care for it anyway. Because God has placed you where he wants you for a reason. Yeah, what we see with Nehemiah is a man faithful where God has placed him. And in case you have any misconstrued notions, a cupbearer is not the glamorous job. I mean, you got to test another man's food to make sure he lives. And he's not even an Israelite. He's the one who conquered you. And you going to give good advice to this one that owns you? What makes a man do that? Well, he's being faithful to God, not a king. But what we see with Eliashib is a man who uses the things that God has given him and placed over him not to advance the glory of God, but to attempt to advance himself. But hear me, church, a faith that finishes well is a faith that is faithful in whatever God has called you to now. Now, listen, I'm not saying God can't move you to the other grass, but I'm saying until God moves you, be faithful where you are. But one thing I know that God has called each and every one of us to is to be faithful children in his house. That's the second lesson I want you to see this morning. A faith that finishes well does not neglect the house of God. I'm going to say it again. A faith that finishes well does not neglect the house of God. Look at verses 10 through 13 with me. He says this, he says, I also found out that because the portions for the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back to his own field. Therefore, I rebuked the officials saying, why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levites, the singers together and stationed them at their posts. Then all Judah brought a tenth of grain, new wine, and fresh oil into the storehouses. He says, I appointed as treasurer over the storehouse the priest, uh, Shilamiah, the scribe, Zadduk, Petaiah, the son of, and the Levites, of the Levites, with Hanan, son of Zakor, son of Metanon, to assist them because they were considered trustworthy. They were responsible for the distribution to their colleagues. So as a result of Elisha. And his decision to clear out the storeroom for Tobiah, the things necessary to maintain the house of God were gone. So the priests didn't have the resources that they needed to support the Levites and the worship leaders. And so as a result, those people did what they had to do. They went back to their fields and started to work because they have to provide. And Nehemiah is quick to remedy this. He brings them back. He orders all of Judah, watch this, to once again give a tenth of their grain, of their wine, and their oil. Faithfulness demands that we not neglect the house of God. A faith that finishes well prioritizes the house of God. So let me press in here a little bit because there are a few things I want you to see and feel the weight of in this passage. Right? It's easy to say amen when we talk about not neglecting the house of God, but I want to be honest with you that it will cost you something. So that's the first thing I want you to see. Notice the cost. Like verse 12, Then all Judah brought a tenth of the grain, the new wine, and the fresh oil into the storehouses. So don't miss that they had already done this once. The portions were there for the Levites originally. They had 10%. They had a tithe, they had a tenth of all that they needed into the storehouse. And Elisha throws it all out. And so Nehemiah comes back. He asks the king, man, I got to get back to Jerusalem. May I have another leave? And the king says, yes, probably because he's been faithful. And he shows up and he says, yo, we're going to remedy this. But he doesn't look at Elisha. He looks at all of Judah and says, bring another tenth. Bring another tenth. So you know what Judah did? They gave it again. But you know what? This includes Nehemiah. Nehemiah regave another tenth because it's all of Judah. But notice what he says about it in verse 14. Remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of, here it is, faithful love that I have done for the house of my God and for its service. Though it cost Nehemiah something, he does not give begrudgingly. He does not give out of bitterness or reluctance, and he doesn't give with a hatred towards Ilyasia. He gives out of a faithful love. Why? Because he understands what the Lord has done for him. He knows that it was God who delivered them from slavery in Egypt in the first place. It was God who provided for them in the wilderness. It was God who led them into the promised land. It was God who preserved them when they lost the promised land and were exiles because of their own sin. It was God who then forgave their sins. It was God who led them back to Jerusalem. And we learned earlier in Nehemiah that it was God who rebuilt the walls. It has been God every step of the way. So it is not a burden when it costs him to honor the house of God. It is an act of faithful love. Why? Because God has just done too much. God has given too much. God has been too good for him to be bitter about giving anything back to God. And I wonder this morning, if there's anyone here who would agree with Nehemiah that God's just done too much. God's just given us too much. God has been too good for me to be bitter about giving anything back to God. And I'm glad you said yes, because because I want to be honest with you this morning, that, that not neglecting the house of God, it will cost you something. Not generally, not figuratively, literally. Yeah. It's going to cost you something. Yeah. But let's call it what it is. Worship isn't worship unless it costs you something. Because sometimes worship will cost you your pride. As you're forced to reckon with the truth that this ain't about me. It's all about a good God. Sometimes, sometimes worship, it will cost you your dignity. As you wonder what people are going to think about you when you start to clap your hands a little bit and raise your voice and shout and praise because God's just been that good. Sometimes worship will cost you your money because God has said, if you want me, you have to take the covenant family too. And being a part of the family means you got to give God some of your resources to care for the family. And I know this is somewhat weird for me to say, right? Because I, I, I'm one of those workers who receives a wage. But, but I understand you're not giving to me. Your tithe isn't to pay for your pastor. Thank you for paying your pastor. But you are giving to the house of God because you are saying this matters more. This gets the first. This gets the best. Because the family matters. The covenant community matters. But I want you to notice something else, not just the cost, but I want you to notice the community. You see, when Eliashib neglected the house of God, it wasn't just Eliashib's problem anymore. The entire house of God had a problem. When one person neglects the house of God, we all suffer. And what this is positioned to teach us is the intimate nature of the house of God. Listen to me, this isn't new for most of you. The single greatest human relationship, please hear me, the single greatest human relationship you will have in this world is the relationship you have with the covenant community of God. The single most important, significant relationship you should have in this world, human relationship is your relationship with the covenant family. I've said it before. I'll say it again. You know the old saying that blood is thicker than water. That's only true if that water isn't the water of baptism. And once again, I think I'm on good exegetical ground here. Let me make my case. Because in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is inside a house teaching. People are sitting around him. And his brothers and his mother come and knock on the door. And they say, hey, We want to talk to Jesus. And so the people who open the door go in, they find Jesus, they say, Yo, Jesus, your brothers and your mother would like to speak with you. And what does Jesus say? Who is my mother and my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father is my brother and my sister and my mother. I'll give you one more. Some of you might be thinking, well, I mean, what about our spouse? Like we've been talking, you know, we talk a lot about marriage. Church loves marriage. We act like marriage is the pinnacle of Christianity. It's not. It's just not. Shouldn't my wife be my closest Human relationship. Shouldn't my husband be, I'm speaking for you, uh, shouldn't my husband be my closest human relationship? Only in so far as they are in the covenant family. Because here's what I say all the time. I say it in marriage counseling. Anybody who's been in premarital counseling has heard me. My wife is my sister in Christ before she is my wife. She is my sister in Christ first. Because one day our marriage will end. Because there is no marriage in heaven. But even marriage itself is a picture of what? Christ and the church. Now listen, what I'm not saying is that you should devalue all your other relationships. I'm not saying that at all. Please don't do that. What I am saying is that you may need to elevate your understanding of the weight of the house of God. Continue to hold those relationships in high regard. Just elevate the family of God above that. See, part of the reason not neglecting the house of God is so essential to ending well is because often it's the very house of God that God will use to get us to the finish line. We need one another as we run this race, right? This this isn't an individual sprint. This is a relay medley where we are running together to reach the end. But if we neglect the house of God, we are neglecting one of the very things that God has given us to get us to the finish line and to hear when we get there, well done, good and faithful servant. And some of y'all in this room know it to be true because some of the greatest growth you have had as a Christian haven't been in moments by yourself in your prayer closet with Jesus. They can happen, but they've been when you've been in the covenant family and people have spoken hard words to you, needed words to you, they've encouraged you. They've uplifted you. They've corrected you. They've rebuked you. Maybe I'm just talking to myself. That's fine. Those have been the most significant moments in my life. One of my greatest ministry moments, one of the defining moments of my ministry was a moment of correction, hard, long correction. But it happened in the family of God. Once again, we need one another. Our faith needs one another. All right, I'm running a little long. I was afraid of this. So I'm going to try to give you the last two quick and it can work because really they're kind of the same, they're different sides of the same coin. So here are the last two lessons I'm going to give you. A faith that finishes well pursues holiness. The point that's coming is that a faith that finishes well avoids unholiness, right? So two two sides of the same coin, but first a faith that finishes well pursues holiness. I'm going to give you a summary. So look at Nehemiah 13 verse 18. It says, says this, didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all the disaster on us and on this city? And now you are rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So what Israel has started to do at this point is the same thing that they did in the past. They neglected the law of God, specifically, specifically seen in Nehemiah 13, by ignoring the laws of God regarding the Sabbath. Right, so, so you see those verses up there. That's, that's all about when they neglected the Sabbath. So they started working on the Sabbath again. If you remember at the beginning of Nehemiah, that's one of the very things listed that led them into exile in the first place. And so they start, they start working on the Sabbath again. They're selling goods on the Sabbath again. And they're allowing others outside the community to come and do the same. And so Nehemiah puts a stop to it by on the Sabbath literally locking people in the city who should be there And locking people out of the city who shouldn't be there. And so at some point, people just start waiting outside the gate to get in on the Sabbath. And he threatens them when this happens, right? Literally, he's like, hey, show up again on site, okay? Some of y'all don't know what that means, okay? Let me try it. Nehemiah gets up there, he says, listen, try Jesus, but don't try me. Because I will throw hands. Like he literally says, you stay out there on the Sabbath, And I'm going to come whoop you. And they leave. Like, they ain't messing with Nehemiah. I don't think they're even fully scared of him. I mean, God rebuilt these walls, so they they leave. Now, now when I heard that, I'm like, I read that the first time. I mean, this was, we planned this, I planned this months ago, but I remember reading it months ago, kind of prepping for the series. And I read that, and I was like, dang, Nehemiah, like, calm down. Like, I've been mad at y'all. But I have never threatened to throw hands. And I'm sitting here like, Nehemiah, this seems a little harsh. But then God was gracious to remind me. No, no, it's not Nehemiah being harsh. It's God showing us how much holiness matters. Because God will throw hands if we decide we want unholiness. See, church, listen to me. We are living in a day and age that declares to you your truth is your truth. Right, You do whatever feels right to you. You do what makes you happy. And then the worst part, how dare anyone else try to tell you how to live. I think Isaiah said it, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. But my fear, church, is that in subtle and discreet ways, we begin to believe that those things are true. So when God says don't do something that you want to do, you're tempted to believe that you're the final authority. Or when God says, hey, do this, but you don't really want to do it. You think that you get the final vote. But I want to remind you this morning that holiness has never depended on popular opinion. Are you with me? It has never depended on popular. Holiness is not popular right now. It's just not. But it's never dependent on popularity. Holiness has never relied on what is easy or comfortable. Holiness has never been defined by the U.S. Constitution. It's never been ultimately defined by any human court. Holiness flows out of the very nature and character of God. It is defined by God because God is holy. I mean, just consider Isaiah 6, right? It says in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah's reign says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. You remember that? He gets to the point where he sees seraphims flying around. Crazy looking things. Bunch of wings, bunch of eyes. But they're declaring one thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. But I'll do you one better. John has another vision of heaven. And he sees the same things. And do you know what they're still saying after thousands of years? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so what happens to Nehemiah? Woe is me. Because he judges his holiness. Not by the standard of the day. Not by being better than the rest of Israel. Because he might have been. He looks at a holy God and says, that's holiness. And it's not me. See, the author of Hebrews reminds us of the significance of holiness when he says this. I mean, sit with this for a minute. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, none of you will see the Lord. Mm -hmm. To finish well, we must be a people for whom holiness is matters. Mm-hmm. And not just on Sunday mornings, yeah. not just when you show up at community group and put on your face. Yeah. When no one's at home, mm-hmm. when it's you in the computer, yeah. when you're walking down the street and that attractive person walks by and you have the thought, do I look again? Mm-hmm. No one's going to know. Nobody's going to catch that little white lie at work, but it'll help you get ahead. Holiness matters. Because if no one else sees, God sees. But in order to pursue holiness, there is another side to that coin. And a faith that finishes well avoids unholiness. So what we see in in verses 29 through 31, the end of the chapter, is, is that when Nehemiah returned, he noticed another problem. Not just were they violating the Sabbath. But they were breaking the law of God by marrying those from other nations. Now, this has come up a couple times, and so let me spend just a minute. I know we're running long, but but y'all seem happy, so we're going to keep going. (laughs) Let me explain what's going on here, why this is unholy. Because uh, someone asked me last week, and I really appreciate the question, and they're not here, and I wish they were here this morning, so I'll text it to them. But they said, why is it wrong for them to marry someone who is ethnically different? And then they ask a the question. It's a great question. How do we interpret that now? Right? Like I mean they were asking humbly, but it's like does this prohibit like interracial marriages? Is that's what's going on here? That's not what's happening here. All right. So so let me e- explain it to you, right? So the reason that God tells Israel his covenant people to stay away from all other nations, it has nothing to do with their ethnicity. It actually has nothing to do necessarily with their culture separated from what they worship. And so the equivalent for us in the New Testament on this side of this covenant is not, hey, you can't marry anybody who's ethnically different. No, no, no. The equivalent of that is not ethnicity. It's yoked. Don't be unequally yoked. So basically what God is telling them is the same thing that I will tell somebody when they come and ask me if they should marry this person. If you are a believer and they are not, it is out of bounds for you to marry that person. It's not optional. It's not a preference. It is out of bounds. And so, so that's what's going on here, right? What, what he sees is not necessarily, it's not Nehemiah mad that there's, that there's multi-ethnic marriages. It's that there's multi-religious marriages, And what he knows, what God knows, is that more often than not, you're going to be pulled away more than you're going to pull them towards you. So that's what's what's going on. But I want you to notice the example he gives there in verse 26 that kind of helps explain this even a little bit further, where he says this, didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? Right? So he's looking at them who are breaking the law of God, and he's saying, come on, y'all. Like, didn't, did, It's not some random dude. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? Yeah. He says there was not a king like him among many nations. I mean, he says he was loved by his God, and God made him a king over all Israel. Yet foreign women drew him into sin. And so what Nehemiah is doing here is he's actually offering an apologetic for avoiding what is unholy. Like, yes, we pursue holiness because God is holy. But here, Nehemiah offers a more practical explanation for avoiding unholiness. I'm not saying it's not practical to be holy because God is holy. That's very practical. But what he's basically saying is this. We avoid unholiness, and y'all should know this, he says, because sin will never truly satisfy the things of this world will not satisfy. And if he needs weight, if he needs a defense, and apologetic, he says, just consider Solomon. Well, why would he say that? Because who is Solomon? The Bible says there was never another person that is as wise as Solomon. Like, I don't care how many degrees you have, you, you will never trump Solomon's wisdom. Because God gave him all the wisdom. But on top of that, dude was loaded Like, I'm talking about loaded, loaded. Like, Bezos would ask him for money. Like, he had everything. So much so that when God's trying to give you a comparison for his provision, he looks at Solomon and says, Hey, for all the wealth Solomon has. Don't the flowers that I cover have even more? Like, Solomon's the dude. And I... I don't know the like appropriate way to say it, but like dude had game. Like he had game. Because as we learn in, in, I think it's First Kings 11, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now I'm not going to get into the merit of all of that. Stick with me here. I'm just saying, I don't know how much wisdom you could really have. And 700, I'm done. All right, 700, here we go. But he gives the example of Solomon. And he says, he is a testimony to us that sin will never satisfy. How do we know it? Because who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Solomon. What's that all about? None of this matters unless it's God. And he had everything. Like it's easy for people to say that when they don't have anything. All that matters is God. Bro, you ain't got nothing else quit fronting on me. Like, if you had a big bank account, would you really say it? But Solomon says, I had it all. Like kings of the world came to me for wisdom. They bowed at my feet. I had the women. I had the money. I had the properties in the mountains and the beach. I had it all, and it was vanity, and it was nothing because God wasn't in it. And I'm trying to tell you, church, the reason we avoid what is unholy is because sin will never satisfy you. Like, yeah, it'll satisfy for a moment. Amen? Like, if your sin isn't satisfying for a moment, you're doing it wrong. But it's not the satisfaction we're longing for. It doesn't cure that ache in our heart that says we have to be built for something more than this. I'm not Solomon, but even my story is one of, I tried so much because I just wanted to be happy and I wanted joy and it was nothing but Jesus. Holiness matters for a faith that is going to finish well. All right, let, me, let me draw this to a close right now for real. There's just, just one more thing I want you to notice. It's actually three things that I'm going to tie together. Three times in Nehemiah 13. This, this is the ending. Just tr- stay with me. Three times he makes a statement beginning with, remember me. Nehemiah 13:14. Remember me for this, my God. And don't erase the deeds of faithful love I have done for the house of my God and for its service. The end of verse 22. Remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with compassion according to the abundance of your faithful love. Jump down to the very last statement, the third remember me statement at the end of 31. Remember me, my God, with favor. Now watch this. Nehemiah is fighting for himself and for the people of God to finish well. But what Nehemiah knows as evidenced by those pleas for God to remember him is that the only way they will finish at all is if the Lord keeps them. He knows that these people are plagued with this thing called sin. And everything in them is pushing them to run from the Lord. And so he pleads with God, God, not only would we remember you, but remember me. Remember us. Listen to me, church. Here's what I'm getting at. We should desire a faith that is moving forward. We should desire a faith that will finish well. But here's the best news I can give you. I've never said, not once this morning, we need to cultivate a faith that finishes. We need to cultivate a faith that finishes well. Why? Because regardless of how you run the race, In Christ, we are guaranteed to reach the finish line. Because our standing with God has never depended on our ability to finish the race. Our standing with God, come on church, has always depended on the one who finished for us. You remember, don't you? Because nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus showed up. Because despite man's best effort, we could never run a race that was perfectly holy. We could never reach the end without spot or blemish. But Jesus did. And though he, by living the life that we should have lived, earned the blessing of God, he took our curse instead. They put nails in his hands. Come on, church. You knew I was going to get here. They put nails in his feet. They put a spear in his side and a crown of thorns on his head. They crucified him. But here it is. Before he breathed his last breath, he declared, it is finished. But listen to me. They put him in a tomb. And three days later, he rose from the dead, having conquered sin, death, and the grave. And for the person who places their faith in that Jesus, we have a promise of eternal life. And what that means is that we can run this race, not fearful of whether or not we will make it to the end. Because the finish is guaranteed. But we strive to run well, knowing that he has finished on our behalf because Jesus finished it. On the cross. And so hear me, church, we strive to run well, not to earn God's favor and ounce, but because we already have it in full and a life lived well, a faith that ends well is one that runs this race, not out of an obligation, but out of love because we want to honor with our life the one who laid down his life for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your grace and mercy this morning, God. I thank you for giving us hearts that were attentive and minds that were alert. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would use the truth of your word to push us to run in such a way as to win the prize, that we would finish well, trusting, hoping, believing, savoring the fact that we know we will make it to the finish line because you have already showed us immeasurable favor in Christ. And so God, we give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name, amen.